Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Children of the Night. Thank you for joining us on our first stop on our drive south. We'll find our way back to the cabin after a bit of a vacation. We'll have some fiction tonight, but what about the parts around here? There are two things that I've enjoyed in my life that come into play here. Remember that show Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack? I'd watched that growing up and know that much later in life than when I should have known better, it kept me awake. Sometimes it was the alien abductions or monster sightings, but the regular pieces on someone, usually a man, breaking into a home and killing someone or the entire family was what really kept me from my sleep for nights on end. The other is hiking, which I have to admit I haven't got nearly as much as I would have liked to in this year. A primary appreciation for hiking is that of solitude, which can also be one of its dangers. On some of the less popular trails, a broken ankle could possibly lead to death. Becoming lost also could lead to death. Fortunately, these things are rare, but they have happened before, and they'll happen again. A mix of these two things came about in the real story that I'll share part of. Practically in our cabin's backyard in 1996, two Appalachian Trail hikers were found bound and killed. The couple, Miss Winnens and Miss Williams, had been hiking with their dog Taj, and when they had failed to report in with family and friends, a search was started by rangers which discovered their campsite and, tragically, their bodies. The FBI has kept quiet about the details surrounding the murder itself. However, they have been clear that robbery was not the motive, but it is likely that the romantic relationship between the two hikers and or their gender were primary factors in being targeted. Although six years later the judicial system would indict a man of the crime, nothing would come of it, and the case still remains, unfortunately, unsolved. 
there have been speculations that link these murders to another pair of murders in 1986 in the eastern part of Virginia, in which another female couple were killed in such a way that it is hard to not see parallels between the two. Hopefully, the person or persons that committed these terrible crimes and the other monsters that may live quietly among us will someday be caught. Let's hear some stories. We've got three of them for your enjoyment. The first will come in just a little under eight minutes, the second just over 12, and then a third at about 21. So, settle in. First up will be one from M.J. Preston. M.J. Preston is just like you, with dreams and ambitions. He is an average guy who is slugging it out in the publishing world, trying to get his stories into the hands of readers. That's why he does this. He has no aspirations of red carpets or fame. He just wants to tell stories for the rest of his life, and as long as you are there to read them, he will keep writing. Link to his webpage will be in the show notes, but be sure to check out his more recent books, The Equinox and Acadia Event, inspired by runs as a trucker through the Northwest Territories. Tonight, we will hear MJ Preston's story, Counting Paces. Zero seven hundred five hours. Sarah was still in bed when I started the car. I warmed it up for two minutes, something she absolutely insisted on. The car was hers, a present from her father when we married, but not without some sound mechanical. I can still hear the old blowhard preaching, Warming the car up gives the engine a chance to self-lubricate, Michael. Running a car for two minutes before you put it under load will add years to the life of the engine. I sat patiently smoking a cigarette, watching the digital clock on the stereo. It flipped over to 7.06 a.m., but I didn't dare pull out of that driveway until two minutes were up. She might have been in bed, but she would know. 0707 hours. The little base bungalow is in my rearview mirror, and so is Sarah. I drove with great care, not wanting to scuff my boots. We've been living on the army base for a little over a year now, and my supervisor, Sergeant Pierce, doesn't like me much. He's always on my case about my boots not being shiny enough, never mind the creases in my pants and dress shirts not sharp enough. I work in a motor transport with about eight other soldiers. Soldiers? <laughs> Misfits is more like it. Most of the soldiers in headquarters don't fit in at the regular combat units. Most of us have one issue or another, be it disciplinary, administrative, psychological. We just don't quite work properly in the cogs of that military machine, so they ship us into headquarters where we can't do too much damage. At any rate, that's where Sergeant Pierce comes in. Pierce is a ball buster. He loves jacking the men up. And though I think that the eminent Sergeant Pierce is actually a much older version of the underachievers he now commands, I don't dare say it aloud, because he intimidates me like no other. After the last inspection, I ended up doing four weekends of extra duties because Pierce couldn't see his crooked smile in the toes of my boots. What's the matter with you, Hicks? He barked at me. This is basic training stuff. What the hell is your problem? I stood there at the chow as he went up one side of me and down the other. I just stared straight ahead, knowing that any reply would only make it worse, because whatever my excuse would be no excuse at all. You can't appease the Sergeant Pierces of this world, which is the one thing the Army has taught me. 0715 hours. I arrive at the parking lot outside the compound, look to the building I work in, and marvel at the distance I will have to walk from my parking spot to the building. Locking Sarah's precious car, I begin counting paces. One... Two, 
three, four, five, six, seven, and so it goes. As I count the paces from the gravel parking lot, the work I put into making my boots shine is being worn down by the fine granules of dirt kicked up in the air. As the abrasive goes to work on the spit shine, I try not to explode. I continue counting in my head, walking toward the building. Forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-nine. The counting soothes me and keeps me from screaming aloud in rage at the stupidity of it all. Here they want us turned out in our best bib and tucker and make us park our personal vehicles in a parking lot almost a kilometer from the building. It's a fucking conspiracy. 122, 123, 124. I've done this every day for the last eight months, and it calms me. Gets me ready to face Pierce and keeps me from going completely and utterly insane. The numbers are the steady, the invariable beat which keeps me rolling along, and though I know that is all slowly unraveling, I continue the count. 200, 201, 202. Pick them up and put them down, I think, and as I do, my mind slides into the chasm. And the numbers, like my paces, seem to slide by with ease and relieve me of the things that twist inside me and make my guts ache. 327, 328, 329. From the distance I hear a voice. Hicks! Hey, Hicks! I glance back. 441, 442, 443. It's Randall, just getting out of his car. I ignore him keeping the count in my head as I am now almost at the main building, and the numbers draw me onward. Almost 775 now. I think it will top 800 this time. Over eight months, the paces have alternated between 769 and 779, but never over. I stop at the doorway at 778 paces, and the count is over. Didn't make it this time. I take a deep breath and enter the M.T., Motor transport for you civilians. As I walk in, I see the guys milling about and joking. We are separate from the tradesmen, a small troop of combat soldiers, but headquarters is a large part of the regiment that numbers over 200 with the tradesmen. Tradesmen? <laughs> Glorified wrench-turners is more like it. Just then, Randall steps up beside me. Hey, Hicks, didn't you hear me? I smile. Sorry, Randall, I was daydreaming, I guess. No sweat. He looks down at my parade boots. Wow, your boots look good. Thanks, I say, and pull a kiwi cloth out of my pocket and carefully wipe the dust from them, ever weary of leaving a mark or a finite scratch. Fall in, Master Corporal Crab calls out. We get into formation, waiting for Pierce to do roll call. It's always a crapshoot as to whether or not he'd do an inspection. Attention, Crab calls in a drill voice that just didn't measure up. I try not to smile but do anyway. Then Pierce comes out, tearing the smile from my face, setting the anxiety loose in my stomach. As he marches out, I can hear the clickers on his boots clacking across the concrete floor. He isn't even in position yet and calls out, Open order, march! We open ranks and I stand there, third from left in the second rank, waiting for Pierce to come and scrutinize my uniform. He makes his way through the first rank, berating soldiers for their boots, their rank insignia, their mustaches, and their haircuts. I wait for him to swing around and give me the once-over, holding myself firm and remembering how he'd torn me a new one. I remember feeling so little in front of him, remember him yelling at me, asking me what was the matter with me, if I was stupid or lazy. I just stood there and took it, but I wanted to scream back at him, I wanted to tell him that shining my boots wasn't high on my priority list. 
wanted to tell him I had bigger things on my mind. But I couldn't, no matter how much I wanted to, and he continued to scream at me. Why can't you find time to put some effort into your boots? I wanted to look him right in the eye and scream back at him. Shining my boots hasn't exactly been at the top of my priority list, Sarge. Tell me, Sergeant, would it be on the top of your priority list if you thought your wife was fucking someone else? But I said nothing. And for my sins, I received four weekend duties. Four days for Sarah to roll around with whomever it was she was fucking, while I was away earning the pittance of money the military supplied us with. Pierce is walking behind the first rank now, checking their haircuts. He gets to the end and starts the inspection of my rank. As he does this, my heart beats faster. My knees tremble and I feel like vomiting. Before I know it, he's standing in front of me, checking me over and I wait. Here it comes, I think. This is the day he pushes too hard. I can smell his aftershave as he leans in and stares downward. I stand there, statuesque, head and eyes to the front, but I am studying him, and see the sour expression on his face, and then he hunkers out of my line of vision. I feel him scratch his fingernail across the toe of my boot to see if I had coated them in floor wax. As he does this, I fight off the urge to ask him if he'd be up for giving me a hummer. He stands up and grunts. Better. Then he moves on to the next victim. The day drags on, and I put in my time, dreading going home to face Sarah. All we were going to do was argue. Funny how I hated my job so much, but still hated the idea of going home. After we were dismissed, I waited for Randall to head on out to his car so that he doesn't bother me during my ritual. 1,625 hours. Randall's gone. Pick him up and put him down. 24, 25, 26. I walk on, drowning out the insanity I keep at bay. That is really why I count. I am going insane. Just barely holding on and counting paces keeps me from the abysmal leap that I know I will eventually take. Twenty-one hundred hours. I will sleep on the couch tonight. Sarah and I don't talk. I can barely look at her knowing that she had slept with someone else. Our end is coming. There will be no salvaging our marriage, no counseling. She has hurt me so deeply. I polish my boots for three hours tonight. They are so shiny you could gaze into them and brush your teeth if you cared. I fall asleep in front of the TV and never wake up once through the night. I dream of sleeping in and being late for morning inspection. Sergeant Pierce yelling, Sarah fucking, and me going mental. Zero six hundred hours. The alarm clock buzzes. I open my eyes and my back is sore from the couch. Zero seven hundred seven hours. Two-minute warm-up on the car, and I'm off and running. Zero seven hundred fourteen hours. I get to the gravel lot and I see Randall's car there and breathe a sigh of relief. It isn't that I don't like Randall. He's a nice enough guy. But all he talks about are his kids. All five of them. Randall, who is just living above the poverty line, keeps squeaking out kids with that baby machine he married. I swear to God, she's a brainless uterus, this woman making a kid a year. I don't get it, but then I really don't care. I start the count from my parking spot and shut the world out. 66, 67, 68. I look down, watching the dust kick up as I walk, and wonder if this will be the day. 
Getting closer, I see Sergeant Pierce outside, smoking and watching me as I approach the building. Even from this distance, I feel the dislike he has for me. 144, 145, 146. A tank rolls down the roadway which separates the gravel lot from the compound, and once it is passed, I see Pierce is also gone. In my fantasies, he lies on the ground, clutching his chest from a massive coronary. A smile spreads on my face. When I reach the building door, something remarkable occurs. 795, 796, 797. Oh my God, I actually said aloud. 800, 801, 802. I stop. And then... 804. 804 paces from my parking spot to the front door. This has never happened before. I wonder if it is a sign... Had I lost count when I felt Pierce's steely eyes upon me? I didn't think so, but I wanted to be sure. We form up and Pierce comes out, not bothering with an inspection. He talks about upcoming events and then tells us that we will be doing our annual qualifications on small arms. Starting tomorrow, we will be going to the ranges to zero weapons and warm up. By Friday, I expect everyone here to qualify. So, in respect to that, I am cutting your workday short and giving you administration for the rest of the day. Tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. we will form up here and march to the ranges. The dress will be full battle order. We will eat breakfast and lunch on the ranges, so ensure that you have your KFS and canteen cups. He went on some more, but I'm too preoccupied with the walk back to the car. 1130 hours. We get dismissed for the afternoon and I wait for Randall and everyone else to shuffle out to their cars. I don't want any distraction as I count the paces. This time walk slowly each step measured as I make my way back to the car. 1152 hours. When I reach my parking spot, the count is 810. It was increasing. This was a sign. 1209 hours. When I get into the driveway, I see something move in the house, and know it is what I have been waiting for. I calmly park the car. Get out. Walk around to the trunk and remove my pal, trusty Mr. Tire Iron. As I make my way toward the house, I say, Mr. Tire Iron, I am about to introduce you to Mr. Lover. I decide then that I will count the paces until I get him. Sarah, I'm home, I announce loudly. One, two, three, four. I got the rest of the day off. I'm going to the rifle ranges tomorrow. Seven. Eight. I stop and look at our bedroom door. See it is slightly open. I scan the room, and then I see a shoe sticking out from behind the entrance to the living room. Eleven. Twelve. I raise the tire iron and he bolts for the front door. Fourteen. Fifteen. Sixteen. Thunk. He hits the floor with a thud, and blood begins to pour out of the back of his head. I lean over his unconscious body, worried I might have killed him. I don't want that. He is still alive but I have to get a dressing on that wound. 1,404 hours. I have him tied to a chair. As he regains consciousness, he looks groggy, still trying to remember what happened. I am sitting right in front of him, smiling, and that wakes him right up. In my hand, I hold a steak knife. Okay, here's the deal, man. I am going to take the tape off your mouth, but if you cry out, I'm going to drive this steak knife into your eye and remove it, so you gotta stay calm. Think you can do that? He lets out a sigh or a gasp and nods. I remove the tape from his mouth. What's your name? 
I ask. Rick! He starts to cry. You fucking killed her! No, Rick, I didn't kill her. You killed her when you started sleeping with her. You sick fuck! Only question is what to do with you, I muse, and his eyes suddenly dawn with terror, as if he's forgotten his predicament. I smile. How silly of him. I mean, for Christ's sake, he's tied to a chair with a big ugly lump on his head. He opens his mouth to say something, protest, beg for his life, maybe. I don't give him a chance. Lights out, Rick. I hit him with the tire iron again. I go to work. Sixteen hundred hours. I'm done, and have accomplished what I intended, the very thing I have fantasized since finding out. If he's lucky, he will regain consciousness by morning. I go down in the basement and prep all my kit for the next day. Preparation is going to take a number of hours, especially if it is to meet the scrutinizing eye of Sergeant Pierce. 2345 hours. I wake to the muffled cries from the bedroom. Rick is awake. I make a cup of coffee, light a cigarette, and take care of my last bit of business. Finish coffee and drift back to sleep. I know this sounds strange, but I've never been affected by caffeine. Zero five hundred ten hours. The sun is rising. After loading my gear into the car, I poke my head in the bedroom to say goodbye to Rick. While he was asleep, I stripped away his clothing and bound him to the very bed where he took liberty with my wife. Then I set about binding Sarah's lifeless naked body atop his, tying her wrists and ankles to his. Everything is perfect. They should find you by noon, Rick, I say. I thought that this would be a more fitting way to punish you for destroying my marriage. She's yours now. She looks like some grotesque zombie lover gone wild. I close the door and return to this steno pad to record my final thoughts. Zero five hundred twenty hours. I expect Rick will be pretty messed up when this is over. While he slept, I went downstairs and got the five fifty six ball ammo I'd been stockpiling and loaded up all my magazines. Everything is set now. I'm going to count the paces on the way to the ranges, and when I hit the right number, I'm going to kill Sergeant Pierce first. I wonder how many of them I can take out before they bring me down. The End That was M.J. Preston's Count and Paces, as read by Jeffrey Welchman. With speech and voice training at NYU's Circle in the Square Theater School, Jeffrey has a solid grounding in acting and voice. From 2006 to 2009, he recorded narration for web-based training and tutorials for the U.S. Army Environmental Command. He also has recorded IDs for Umbrella Radio. From 2010 to 2015, he worked for Sienna, the telecommunications technology company where he recorded and produced narration and audio IDs for web-based training, Lectora, Storyline, Camtasia, and also produced short video pieces. In 2015, he was hired by Care First as a learning tech specialist, using especially in digital media to create videos and training with original music and narration. Jeffrey's home studio is equipped with Rode NTK and Shure microphones, SE Reflection Filter, and Logic Pro software with Apogee One digital interface. A link to Jeffrey's website will also be in the show notes. You can read also about his credits in podcasting as a writer, as an editor, and also as a musician. Thank you, Jeffrey. Next up will be a story from another Jeff, Jeff Chapman. 
Jeff is a software engineer by day and a speculative fiction writer by night. He has been writing just about all of his life, but became serious about it and pursued publication after surviving a serious illness. He lives with his wife, children, and cats in a house with far more books than bookshelf space. And now, Jeff Chapman's Shafts to Hell. Now you listen carefully. He poked a stubby, calloused finger at his audience sitting on the bunk across the cell. It didn't happen the way they'd been telling it. Can't say who put up with all Elmore's preaching. All shut up in the bowels of that gold mine. Those tunnels are tighter than a snakeskin. The deeper we dug and blasted, the tighter they got. He shivered. Gives me the willies just to tell of it. Like coffins they were. All dark and dusty and narrow. My neck scratching the rock above and my chin the rock below. And Elmore behind me, jawing on and on about sin and kingdom come. All the while we were digging our way to hell. He laughed. Elmore wasn't always so high and mighty. I wouldn't have made him a partner if I'd known how marrying that Bible-thumping teetotaler would tarnish him. Whores weren't good enough for Elmore. No, he had to have himself some kind of lady. Something pretty and shiny. Now I'll admit she was a fine woman to look at. Don't know what she wanted with Elmore. Maybe she saw something malleable like gold. If only we'd struck a big vein before. Well, before it took to preaching. I know it's there. We'd seen glimmers of it. Streaks of yellow like Elsie's hair and that yellow dress she wore on Sundays. He shook his head. Sundays. Elmore quit working Sundays after getting hitched to Elsie. Left me to do all the digging myself. Wasn't all bad alone every seventh day. Some folks go to hear preaching on Sundays. That's the only day I didn't hear preaching, and I am thankful. It was on a Sunday that I got stuck. Got my gut wedged in tight, and Elmore wasn't there to pull me out. My candle burned itself out, and I was trapped in the darkest of mines. Any direction I moved my hands or arms, I hit rock. I shivered and screamed, but that mountain had a grip on me. That mine wailed when the wind blew, and all night I lay in the black guts of the earth listening to the mine wail. I heard people say that moaning is from souls stuck in hell, crying for mercy. Well, if that be true, they begged all night and didn't get none. Guess I'll find out myself soon enough. Zelmore so fond of saying, I got more sin weighing on my head than the mountain above the mine. Ain't no way I'm getting into heaven. No siree, I done cooked my goose. But I shivered all night, surrounded by all that cold rock, fearing a scorpion might crawl up my pants. Elmore pulled me out in the morning, tied a rope around my ankles. He leaned against the wall, stroking the ragged beard that covered his chin, grinning at the opposite bunk. I bet you're wanting to know why I did it, where I got the idea. Well, one day we got to talking about sin and flesh, and those folks got snowed in, the Donner people, and had to eat their dead to make it through the winter. Elmore mounted his high horse and said he'd starve to death before he'd, now what did he say? Violate the sanctity of a fellow's remains. And that got me to thinking in that twisted way you think when you've been crawling around beneath the mountains. Wasn't too hard, really. You could say Lady Luck paid me a visit. Elsie was taking the stage to San Francisco to visit her sister. 
I asked her to come by my shack and take some letters to mail. Elmore went on up to the mine. She was gussied up real pretty. Her being a trusting Christian woman never crossed her mind why I'd have letters since my ma and pa are long dead. I got no notion where my brothers are. I didn't go up to the mine that day. I was busy. When Elmore came down the mountain, told him we had a feast. He thought I'd butchered a hog, but no siree, there ain't nothing make me kill one of my fatted barrows to feed Elmore, even to celebrate the mother vein. So we sat down and ate our fill of meat, and Elmore smiled his stupid grin and patted his swollen belly. Only thing worse than his preaching was his damned optimism. He always thought we was just one pickaxe swing from the mother vein. That's why he pushed me to work so long and to squeeze into places where a man ain't fit to squeeze. It was greed, cold as the snow on top of the mountain. Well, I asked him after he'd stuffed his fat belly, what'd you think of the meat? He said it was the sweetest pork he'd ever tasted. Now it was my turn to grin. I went over to the stove and took the lid off one of the pots. I was pickling Elsie's head in some moonshine. Served that teetotaler right to soak up some real lightning and fire. Grabbed Elsie's head by the hair and held it up for Elmore to see. Say hello to your dinner, I said. Things got a bit confused after that. Somehow Elmore got a knife stuck in his chest. He loved that little woman so much he tried to cut open his stomach to let her out. But he wasn't letting her out of me. Some people been saying that I'm a savage, but I ain't no engine. I didn't lift a scalp off Elsie and hang her locks outside my door. No, I left her pretty hair attached to her head. Folks like Elmore would starve in the mountains, but not me. I know how to... He stopped at the sound of voices belonging to the sheriff and a stranger. If not for the, well, the savagery, said the sheriff, it'd be your typical case of murder. One partner killing the other when they get up to a big strike. The bank manager said Elmore thought they were close, and Elmore wasn't one for counting his chickens. This is common? asked the strange voice. The murder, not the other. These miners get greed boiling over, looking for gold one day after another. Greed and jealousy are the poisons of the soul. Shame about Elsie. Not right for an honest, respectable woman to suffer like that. Will I be able to spend some time alone with him? Well, that won't be a problem, Padre. No one will bunk with him. And I'm obliged to you for riding all the way over here. I'm not a cruel man, so I like to honor their last request if I can. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lost soul was calling. The, um... The... Mm, he's gonna swing in the morning, if that's what you're asking. Expect a big crowd. Elsie was much liked. The sheriff unlocked the doors to the cell. Melvin, here's that priest you asked for. Melvin gawked. The priest stepped forward, then stopped and stared at the bunk opposite, where a pillow sat propped against the wall with a happy face scrawled on it in bean juice. Made his own bunkmate, said the sheriff. Talks to it all day and all night long. I see, said the priest, fingering the crucifix over his heart. Melvin lunged to the bars, dropping to his knees. He thrust out his arm and grabbed a handful of the priest's black robes. The priest flinched and tried to back away, but Melvin held fast to the cassock. I've sinned horribly, Father, so much that Almighty, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost all together can't forgive me. But I need to know something before I hang. Tell me, Father, is hell a cramped place, long and narrow, like a gold mine? That was Jeff Chapman's Shafts to Hell, as read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has taught sword fighting for the stage and runs lights for a local band until they broke up. He currently works tangentially for the legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts, and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes to make a bit of money from voice acting and narration someday. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping and stalking the fish in the aquarium, and Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish remain unimpressed. Our third and final story for the night will come from Angela Slatter. Specializing in dark fantasy and horror, Angela is the author of The Girl with No Hands and Other Tales, Sourdough and Other Stories, The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recordings, and Black-Winged Angels, as well as Midnight and Moonshine and The Female Factory, both with Lisa L. Hannett. She has won five R.E.L.S. Awards, one British Fantasy Award, been a finalist for the Norma K. Hemming Award, and a finalist for the World Fantasy Award twice. Angela's short stories have appeared in Australian, UK, and US Best of Anthologies, such as The Mammoth Book of New Horror, The Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror, The Best Horror of the Year, The Year's Best Australian Fantasy and Horror, and The Year's Best YA Speculative Fiction. 
She has an MA and a PhD in creative writing, is a graduate of Clarion South 2009 and the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop 2006, and in 2013, she was awarded one of the inaugural Queensland Writers Fellowships. Her novellas of Sorrow and Such from Tor.com and Ripper in the Stephen Jones Anthology Horrorology from Joe Fletcher Books will be released in October 2015. Angela's urban fantasy novel Vigil, based on the short story Brinsland by Night, will be released by Joe Fletcher Books in 2016 and the sequel Corpse Light in 2017. She is represented by Ian Dury of the literary agency Shealand. And now, Angela Slatter's Bluebeard. Her breath smells like champagne, but not bitter as you might expect. Something inside her turns it sweet. I'm not sure what. She's a sugar candy kind of girl, bright and crystalline, as she reclines on the sofa, a chaise lounge more correctly. Her hair is spun like golden sugar. Her eyebrows so light they may as well not be there. Her lashes so contrastingly black that they must be dyed her skin pale pink, and her mouth a rosebud pout filled with small pearly teeth. Around her neck curls a long string of beads, wrapped twice and still long enough to hang to her waist. The dress is diaphanous, shimmering yellow, damp in places with traces of her last client. She is nothing if not lush. She catches me looking and smiles, How's my girl doing? Her voice is honey, smooth, practiced as though I'm one of her patrons. I sit primly on the edge of my seat, hands clasped in my lap, knees together, shiny black shoes snug against one another. My pink dress stretched as far over my knees as it will go. I'm fine, mother. I study the pile of books on the corner table. Did David leave those for me? Yes, Lily. More books for my little genius. My little pearl, she says, still smiling, but crookedly now. My mother doesn't like my intellect. One of her regulars, David, the banker, leaves us both gifts. For her, it's money, gems, and a stickiness between her thighs. For me, it's books. He thinks it funny that his whore's child is smart, a grown-up brain and a ten-year-old body. He is a large man, a nouveau, a teddy bear. David pays for my schooling, too, an expensive convent school where the nuns pretend they don't know what my mother does. Mother thinks it's unnecessary. Schooling, reading, eh, thinking. She's not dumb herself but believes the only brains a girl needs are the soft, wet pink ones between her legs. Better pink matter than gray matter. And she's done well for herself. She owns an apartment in Paris, such a long way from her early life in America's South, and she's got money in the bank, so we don't live hand-to-mouth like so many whores and their children. We did for a time. When we first came here, we lived in a brothel hung heavily with red velvet draperies and run by a madam whose overabundant flesh struggled with the confines of her gown. At first, I made friends with the children of other whores, 
but they were ephemeral creatures, and after the third one disappeared, I stopped bothering. Soon enough, Mother prospered, and we left. She hasn't tried to sell me to some man with a taste for young flesh. Some women sell their daughter's virginity for a fortune. The worst of them have the girl sewn up and sold again and again until some man gets wise to the scar tissue. The very, very worst sell their children's lives altogether, but few people speak of that. It only happens in dark places, places where the air is heavy and sounds are strangely muffled as though crossing a great space, places where what's normal ceases to have any influence, places we will not go. Of course, Mother doesn't refer to herself as a whore. It's what I do in my thoughts. She calls herself a courtesan, but it's all the same, really. Money for cunt, whichever way you slice it. My mother looks like a pearl in a Baroque setting. I try to analyze her, have done so my whole short life, as if she's some kind of rock that I can break down to its elements. I try to write her history, too, in my mind, as if it will help me make sense of her, as if I can trace the patterns and paths of her life and she will suddenly become comprehensible to me, as if my clever little brain will finally crack the one puzzle I can't seem to work out. Davids asked us to go away for the weekend, she says casually. I raise an eyebrow, an expression cynical in an adult, impertinent in a child. Another parent would slap me for it. You mean he's invited you, mother? No, both of us. He's got this big house just outside the Bois du Boulogne. It's not so far, honey. His mama stays there most of the time, but she's away visiting her sister. David wants us to keep him company for the weekend, maybe longer. What about school? Hell, David pays their ridiculous fees. Those old penguins will just have to shut up and bear it. My mother has issues with nuns. Not surprisingly. The car will come for us Friday afternoon. What about his mother? What will she say if she finds out? I ask, probing, knowing she'll hate it. We don't need to know that, do we? We don't need to ask questions. Her teeth are gritted, her smile tight. I'll let her go now, release her from the hook of my curiosity. So we're off to the countryside. I'm a child of cities, of cobbled streets, of tall houses that block out the sun. I'm a child who knows how to weave among the legs of a crowd like a nimble rat. How will I know what to do in treed spaces where no noise rushes by one's ears in a hurry to go wherever noise goes? It's dark when we arrive. The house is big and old. It sits in its park, dark and pockmarked, ivy growing across it like moss on the back of a toad that's been sitting too long in one place. I can see, through one of the windows, a tiny light inside, coming closer as its bearer glides forward. David opens the door for my mother, and the driver opens mine. I struggle out, pushing against the darkness that swarms outside the safety of the automobile. It's like a dog, too big, 
too friendly, and I run to press myself against my mother's legs, briefly acting my age, thinking that all the protection I need is there. Her hands stroke my hair, curl around my earlobes and hold me briefly. Then she takes the arm David offers, catches at my suddenly cold hand, and we move toward the opening door of the house. The man at the front door is old. Straight in the manner of those who pride themselves on not succumbing to the rigors of age. Handsome in a silvered way, snide in his look at my mother and I. There's that quick flash of disapproval. His kind sometimes recognize my mother's in a moment, servants and whores being close kin. Perhaps the servant recognizes this kinship and so despises anyone who reminds him of it. Any road, it's obvious. He will cover his disdain for my mother, at least while his master is around. He will not bother with me, for I am a child, and a whore's child at that. Who will care if I complain? We are led to a dining room, and a sumptuous table set with more food than three people have any hope of getting through. Perhaps there are more servants in this house, and they will benefit. Or maybe it will go to the church, and the priest will give it to his flock. Or the priest and his fat housekeeper will gorge themselves silly before they go off to bed and sin against their god. The priest burying his busy prick between her rosy thighs like a spade in damp soil. I was born a cynic. Above the fireplace hangs a portrait. The woman is large-boned, with a heavy jaw, and thick lips. Her hair is pulled back severely, defying the frivolity of her silver-pink ball dress. She holds a Chinese fan in masculine hands, seemingly caught in the moment just before she breaks it in a cold rage. I don't think I would like her. That's my mother. Little one. David has caught the direction of my gaze. It was painted during her season in Paris, before she married my father. I nod dutifully and turn my attention back to the plate in front of me. My mother and David talk, and I drowse over my meal. I slip sideways in the high, overstuffed chair and press my head against my mother's breasts. Her hand is tender if a little distracted. Then David hoists me like a doll. He is a big man, a bear who's been shaved and taught to walk upright. His smile is strange and his eyes are yellow. He smells like amber grease. He tucks me into a large bed on the second floor. My mother has stripped away my Navy school uniform, but has neglected to slip the white nightgown over my head. She turns away and folds the uniform as her lover pulls the thick linen sheet up to cover me. His huge hands skim my flat chest. I cannot tell if it's deliberate or not. He rubs a palm over my cheeks, then dips his thick thumb in my mouth quickly before my mother turns back. I am a child. I am tired. I am afraid and removed from all the anchors of my normal life. My mother would not believe me. 
Something in his face tells me there's no intent there, merely a kind of cruel curiosity to see if whore's blood runs through my veins, too. He has shown no interest in me before. Perhaps I passed his test. I did not react. My mother's lips are soft on my forehead as she whispers goodnight. David is at the door before she pulls back and stands to survey me a moment, smiling. My mother loves me, this I know, but I do not know if she loves me best. Keys! So many keys! I'm sitting at a battered table in the kitchen. An old woman, who could do with a wash, smiles as I eat the porridge she prepared for me. I don't like porridge, but I'm a polite child when it comes to food. I spoon the gruel into my mouth and distract myself by counting the keys hanging on a myriad of hooks on the kitchen wall. If I'm good, I hope she'll let me have some of the fresh bread she's just pulled from the oven. I will have it smothered with the yellowest of butters and the reddest of the jams that sit on the far end of the table. I can almost convince myself that the porridge is worth it. My mother and David have not yet risen. Or perhaps they have risen and gone out for the day. Perhaps there are stables and they've gone riding. Does my mother know how to ride something other than a man? The keys catch my attention again. Some are very old, dark. Others new, brassy and shiny. This is therefore a house of many doors. Otherwise, why all these keys? Maybe there are rooms no one goes into anymore and the keys languish here, forgotten and unused. There is one empty hook, and I wonder on it. Is the room locked? A sealed space? Its key lost? Or is the key kept elsewhere, hidden, and the room a sacred space, guarded from casual intrusion? I finish my porridge, and Cook lets me have some bread and jam. I eat until I feel sick. Bitter in the knowledge that if I hadn't eaten the porridge, I would have been able to eat more bread. Next time, I'll refuse the gruel. Cook shoes me out of the kitchen. As I pass the keys, my eyes slip over the empty space, my fingers twitching as if curling around a key that is not there. The library is huge. I love the smell the perfume of ink and paper. A book sits in my lap. It is small, but so am I. I curl in the corner of an old armchair and carefully turn the pages. The lives of saints glow under my tiny fingers, their faces beautific, despite the torments their bodies are suffering, caught eternally in pain on the paper. All the saints here are women, I found the tome on the desk in front of the arched window. It looks well-thumbed, the pages falling open as willingly as a whore's legs. It has an embroidered cover, fine white linen with religious icons running rampant across it, crucifixes, praying hands, angels' wings. I wonder if it's David's mother who fondles this book, her hands touching the paper faces, envying them their beauty, their pain, 
their martyrdom. My mother would not understand. She is beautiful, but she is no martyr, nor a saint. It is late, and I wonder where she is. I have not seen her or David all day. The butler would not answer me when I asked him at lunch. The cook gave me pitying looks. I retreated to the library. My mother will know to find me here. I must have fallen asleep. I am still nestled in the armchair, but the book has fallen from my lap. Its spine is split and the pages are askew. I want to hide it, but I know its owner will come looking. I bend and collect the pages. Under the leaves of parchment lies a key, quite small, heart-shaped at the end, black with age. I think perhaps it lived in the spine of the book, but now I have destroyed its home. I slip it into the pocket of my pinafore and finish gathering the scattered folios. It's dark outside once again. I make my way to the dining room, damaged book in hand. David sits alone at the laden table. I approach and settle the book next to him. I'm sorry, David. I dropped it in the spine. It broke. I say in a small voice. His great head turns and yellow eyes look at me as if they have to try hard to focus. There's a scratch on his neck, just above the collar of his shirt and a smear of blood on his ear, as if he washed carelessly. I don't step back. Things break, little one. It can be fixed. Books can be fixed. He picks the thing up and turns it over. His hand moves across the cover the same way they have moved across my mother's skin. Where's my mother? His eyes focus on me at last, sharp. Sleeping, Lily. She's very tired. Oh, he reaches out and twines his fingers in my hair, like my mother does. You're not afraid, are you? What a strange child you are. I don't answer him, and he continues. Would you like to stay here, you and your mother? I'm sure your mother would not be happy with us as house guests, David. Mother won't know, little Pearl. He echoes my mother's name for me. But this could be the perfect place for you both. You would be lovely additions to my collection. I try to step back, but he still holds my curls in his great paw. I cannot pull away without losing a hank of hair. His eyes darken, and I think I see the bear inside, not so deep now, but near the surface. He is no longer nouveau, but something dangerous. Something that looks kind, but will swap me aside without thinking. Something that will shred me like a kitten between a dog's teeth. He leans toward me, his breath rank as raw meat. How will you grow, little Pearl? Will you be like her? The fingers of his other hand catch at the hem of my skirt, flicking it up as scornfully as a breeze, but they go no further. Will you be like her, a whore? Shall I wait for you to grow, little Pearl? Will you replace your mother for me? I pull away, heedless of the pain, and he lets me go, laughing. I do not know this man, this man who beds my mother, 
this man who pays for my schooling, this man who brings me books to read, this man who scares me half to death, this man who pushes back his chair and begins to rise. I run. The door is black. The bars of iron across it are rusted in places. The pattern on its lock echoes the heart shape of the key sitting heavily in my pocket. I put my eye to the keyhole. The light is dim inside and I cannot make out much. There is white, there is red, there is black. If I cannot find my mother, I will hide here until daylight. To my surprise, the key turns easily. The lock is well oiled, often used. Someone comes here a lot. Perhaps it is David's mother. I push the door hard. Things hang on the walls and lie on the floor at the edges of the room. Bones lie like pearls in the dim light of the brazier. At the end of the room is a bed, a four-poster draped with sheer curtains. Something lies white and glimmering there. I tiptoe through the bones as if they are daisies in the garden of my convent school. I must not disturb them, or the nuns will be angry. The drapes stick to my hand as if the fabric has sweated in the heat of the room. My mother lies on the soiled coverlet. She is white with red stripes across her skin. One side of her face is swollen, and her lips are the purple-black of dried blood. I think she is dead. I reach out and struggle with the cords that bind her wrists to the bed, then those at her ankles. It's not right that she be like this, splayed and displayed without her consent, without her will. She wouldn't want to look like one of those saints. There is no beauty in her pain. Whoever imagined the saints took their pleasures thus surely had not seen them like this. My hand hovers over her face. I want to touch her skin, to know if it's warm or cold, to see if there is breath left in her, but strong hands pull me away. Little whore. The voice is old, brittle as a cinder, and breathes the words as if they bring pleasure. I struggle, my hair blinding me. I am thrown across the room and land in a pile of bones. A rib pierces my side and I cry out. Whore's daughter, comes the voice again, and I brush the hair out of my eyes. A woman looks down at me, eager as a hunting dog. Her dress was once fine black silk crepe with severe pin tucks stitched by slavish fingers. But now it's dusty and dirty, encrusted with something that may once have been liquid, but now makes the fabric as stiff as a corpse. At her breast hangs a heavy wooden penitence cross, plain, the figure of Christ rubbed featureless by devout caresses. She leers down at me. Too curious, little whore. Just like that one. Her voice drops to a whisper. My son tries to keep them from me, but they always find their way here. They are come to be cleansed. Does your blood run as quickly as theirs, I wonder? Hers is the face from the dining room portrait with its disapproving glare. Her hands are the ones that lovingly caress the Book of Saints, longingly consuming their agony. She comes for me with surprising speed. My hand closes on the broken rib that drips with my blood. As she leans down, hands reaching for me, I jam it into her eye. She screams, jerks, 
Then I hear a wet thud as a second blow falls, and she slumps forward. I scramble out of the way of her falling bulk. Another bone protrudes from her back. My mother stands behind her, and she is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. A shadow falls across the doorway, and David enters, his step hesitant. He seems unwilling to meet my mother's eyes. When he does, he whimpers. I watch her face, and she is terrible as an army with banners. She is naked and bloodied, yet there is something about her that will not be quenched. He did not save her from this danger, and he will not be forgiven. When David sees his mother, his cry is painfully loud. Mother and I limp from the room, leaving him to gather up her body, a reversed pieta. The door closes slowly behind us, and my mother, with only a moment's hesitation, turns the heart-shaped key and the lock. That was Angela Slatter's Bluebeard, as read by Ryan Stahl. Ryan Stahl lives in the haunted, howling hills of northeast Ohio, where he feverishly finagles his own tales of terror on his website, screamingpileofblog.com. Link will be in the show notes. However, at the time of this recording, that link was not in working condition. When not willfully neglecting his duties as a writer, Ryan works as an ophthalmic lens laboratory, where he is known as the mad captain of an equally mad crew of lens lubbers, wherein lenses are made for eyeglasses and spyglasses alike. Thank you, Ryan. And that will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.